You're listening to the Friends Talking Nerdy Podcast Network. Friends Talking Nerdy. If your friends are nerdy and you are nerdy too, I want to talk to you. everybody welcome to another episode of friends talking nerdy the flagship show on the friends talking nerdy podcast network this is tim jousman <laughs> joining me i love how you're just like making fun of me while i'm doing the introduction <laughs> well don't look at me i mean you could ignore me just like most of humanity does and then you could be more successful no i'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> well, joining me all the way in the snowy tundra of Maine, it is the Reverend Tracy. How are you doing? Oh, man, it is officially putting on mountaineer gear to run out and get cocoa weather. Uh, it was two degrees on Tuesday morning, mm-hmm. and that turned out to very much be projected and then was the reality, and the real feel temperature was negative 15. Um, kind of amazing stuff there. I do like that, you know, I like listening to public radio. If I'm going to listen to a radio station that's just a radio station to tune into, I try to keep it on that. Mm-hmm. Um, it just the disappoints and upsets me way less than other options out there. And um, it was funny because I did pick up a lot of, you know, local warnings coming through, right? Because it is for Maine. And there was a lot of reminders of like, remember, it only takes 10 minutes to get frostbite, like on the small appendages, like the fingers or the tip of the nose or ears and things like that. So there's just a lot of reminder of like, you know, you need to bring your pets in, things like that. And then it was really funny. Um, so we had two degrees on Tuesday and then we had, I think, four degrees is what we woke up to the next morning. And this morning, <laughs> no, this that was this morning when the Mr. Reverend looked over it and said, baby, it's going to be so warm today. 24 degrees. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that being said, I do want to give a little bit of learning about this area. Shout out. You know, I've lived a lot of places and I think everywhere has its weather bullshit. You know what I mean? You know, Texas, I lived in Tornado Alley, which is self-descriptive. I lived in Arizona where the heat was kind of a big thing. You know, Portland had like the kind of constant rain, but that one kind of skips this rule and we'll get to that in a minute. Uh So I lived in Arizona with the extreme heat. Now I live in Maine that has the more extreme ends of the cold. You know, we're the, I'm pretty sure we know we're not the northernmost, but because of where we are, it does get really cold here. Like it snows and the snow just stays. Mm -hmm. It doesn't melt and continuously snow. It just snows and then it stays like the same snow was already on the ground when we landed returning on the first of the year. That was the base for the snow that did come like, you know, last week. Um, So it's not constantly snowing in crazy hazardous streets. So calm down. And the other thing is, is with the extreme cold, it's kind of similar to the extreme heat in Arizona in that sure it's cold, but it is a dry cold. And the reason that that still checks out in my head is because of my years of, you know, my time mountaineering and learning about like layers and what things can mean. And the thing is, is you don't want it to be right on that cusp of freezing. Like you want to be kind of far away from freezing on both sides. So when you are really, really cold, the air around you doesn't heat up enough to melt 
in your passing through either. And so you're not getting cold wet. So it was kind of funny. I was a lot more comfortable than I thought I would be. And then when I kind of applied logic and what I've learned to it, um, it turns out it's not that big of a deal. You just have to really make sure you wear gloves when you go out to your car. So, but that's the weather here in Maine. How's the weather in the other Portland? Oh man, it was so rough yesterday. I think uh, it reached about 62 degrees. Um, and, <laughs> sarcasm. <laughs> um, nice and dreary outside. The weather um, is, is definitely warmed up. We're, we're definitely past our cold streak uh, right now. So now it's just continuing uh, more of the dreary raininess, which I, you know, <laughs> after growing up in Michigan and, and having a lifetime of what you were experiencing for the first time, in winter um it's i i'll i'll take this any day but you know to your point um yeah i mean when it does get really really cold i mean most a lot of the time if we're not talking like a major snowstorm coming in then yeah it is going to be what you what you called um the the what do you call that the cold dry cold yeah yeah it's normally going to be that i mean it's if like fresh snows coming in you got like lake effect or but in your case ocean weather coming in then with the wind you know that's a different story because during the winter it's more the wind and wrong clothing that that will make it to where you're, you're really going to suffer the effects you know yes and the death trap that are the bricks in downtown that's something the two portlands have in common by the way is they both had this genius fucking idea to lay bricks with like no space in between them so anytime water hits it it just immediately freezes and slicks over there's actually a woman that broke her arm in like the neighboring building when that all happened last week so kind of kind of nutty stuff but you know it's you know having the right shoes not you know carrying 30 things in your arms to throw your balance off you know there's just a lot of things that you learn and uh, it's it's been kind of fun in that sense. I like the snow. I think it's pretty. Um, the other one was the realization that you do need sunglasses for snow. But these are things that we already knew because of mountaineering. So it's just mm. kind of realizing that some of the logic that we know and some of the stuff we've learned to do mountaineering, the Mr. Reverend and I being the we I'm speaking about because we're both adapting to this yeah. um, is realizing like, okay, well, I don't need crampons because I'm not going up to like the tippy top of a mountain little asterisk here in case I'm speaking over anybody who knows what those are. Those are a device you attach to your mountaineering boot when you're getting up on like icy summits. And it literally has claws in it to dig into the snow and ice. And not generic tampons, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, They're they're not some weird version of like tampons that nobody crampons. Like God, who would want to buy that? Just in the name. I don't know what the effect it's supposed to have. Does it stop them or does it start them? Uh, But anyway, sorry, digressing there. But, you know, instead of crampons for digging into snow and ice up on a mountain, you get yak tracks because that's going to keep you safe on those bricks and things like that. And also still don't maybe run like an asshole. Uh, Take your time, get places early. (laughs) You would think, but, you know, especially when it, it it usually will happen at the very first big snow and you probably already experienced it. People will forget that there's snow, forget that there's ice and, and drive the exact same as they normally would. Oh, yeah. And that's pretty much what happened last week. That was the snow, the first big snow. I thought maybe it was the one that happened while we were gone, but I guess uh, we got to be lucky enough to experience it our first week back from vacation. So we did not miss the first big snow of Maine for our first year here. 
Well, that is very good to hear. That is very good to hear. And, um, you know, I think we'll use that into a segue because we want some good news to go into the bad news that we're going to talk about right now. And um, we've lost in 2022, we've lost a good number of celebrities already. Um, Mm -hmm. The legendary Sidney Poitier um, passed away in his 90s. Uh, Nice long life. Uh, Yesterday, uh, as we record this, I heard the news that uh, legendary 60s uh, uh, girl group singer Ronnie Spector, um, you know, who's singing. I don't know if you're familiar with the 60s song, Be My Baby. I think so. Is that not the one in Dirty Dancing? It it probably, I know um, she also, um, do you know the Eddie Money song, Take Me Home Tonight? Yes, I know that one. The one I'm thinking of was like, be my, be my, be my little baby. Oh, that's her. Okay. That was what I suspected. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, she um, was 78, nice long life, um, you know, when she was married to Phil Spector. Um, ooh, that guy was interesting and um, did some rather bad stuff to her. But, you know, he's in a he's in a nice toasty place now. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, it's odd that how much of that was kind of a theme, you know, with some of the starlets early on and how there was really almost like a, a puppet master type situation going on over that that surprised a lot of people. I mean, I guess it's less surprising now, but it wasn't like people were turning a blind eye to it while it was happening, right? Like even stuff like with Tina Turner and things like that. Yeah, I mean, my understanding, I think people were definitely aware of it, but also you got to, unfortunately, the times being what they were when the Tina Turner thing was happening, a lot of times people were not as proactive as they are today in terms of calling the police, offering help. It's just more that a lot of times people just, that poor woman, that they just accept. Bless her heart or whichever it is, or you hope they see the light. Sorry, I'm dipping into my Southern. You could tell where I heard a lot of those things. <laughs> Mama. <laughs> you even had that, like the fan thing going on. <laughs> well, my stars. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the sad news uh, we wanted to talk about here, you know, in terms of, you know, the pop culture stuff we talk about, it, it's a person that I think, you know, in one way or another has definitely, uh, you know, affected both of our lives in terms of the entertainment we watch. And that is one Bob Saget. Oh, yes. I do remember a lot of Full House growing up. I even remember when Bob Saget kind of started falling from grace as as the mothers down south started learning about his stand-up comedy. And, mm. and I, I have vivid memories of particularly him falling out of grace in the eyes of my mother. Um, yeah, just that being very shaking for people, right? And I mean, and he's not the first one that that's happened with or won't be the last. I mean, you look at Richard Pryor, he surprised a lot of people. Um, you look at Robin Williams, he really shocked folks, I think. And I think that's because, you know, a lot of people equated him with like the genie, right? Um, yeah. But yeah, Bob Saget, he was Danny Tannard, like totally. He even had a stand up bit about a woman approaching him like after a show um, that he had done. And she was very disappointed, right? Because, you know, this is what comedians want. We want you to leave us live reviews by telling us to our face that you did not like what you just went to because we did not meet your expectation. You know, it definitely helps clarify where you can send your requests for our content, like in the future, you know, ahead of time so that we can meet your expectations. No, but 
I guess like the whole thing was she had come up to him after the show and said, well, I just expected you to be like Danny Tanner. And <laughs> Bob Saget quipped back with, what did you want me to do? Stand up there and dust bust for five minutes? Like, <laughs> So he definitely had a hard time getting away from that. And even when he continued, he did America's Funniest Home Videos, you know, for a while which is traditionally where we went to go watch people do stupid shit, you know, before there was YouTube. Uh-huh. Um, before there was YouTube, there was America's Funniest Home Videos. You could tune in for a finite amount of time. And he was still kind of, as someone described, milk toast. He was very dad joke centered. So when you get to his dirty jokes, it's very almost like disarming in a way because you don't expect it. Um, it's not like... A, they go on stage going, hey, I'm Danny Tanner here, but watch out if you look up my other stuff. Uh, yeah, I mean, like growing up, I hated Full House with a passion, you know, I, you know, it, it, even as a kid, it was never meant for me. It was uh, too much of the I mean, my mother liked it. Why was I going to like it? You know. I, and then when you were talking about him on America's Funniest Home Videos, I remember um, I, I was last night watching uh, one of his stand-up specials, and he t- brought up a specific thing that happened in South Park, um, the early on in South Park, where they had a Bob Saget reference. You know, like where they had him on America's Funniest Home Videos, be like, "Knock, knock, who's there? Bob, Bob, who? Bob Saget?" <laughs> and then Cartman goes, uh, "He's he's about as he's not. It's like." Something about like he, he's almost as bad as the guy in Full House. What <laughs> <laughs> sick burn? Yeah, but I'm, I was in the same boat. Like I, I hated him for years, but then one day it was like three o'clock in the morning, and um, it was not on basic cable; it was just regular TV. I didn't have cable at the time, so it was like either watch an infomercial or this. And it was one of his uh, HBO specials, and it was edited, so there was lots of beeps, but there were lots of beeps. And just sitting through that, it was just like this is Bob Saget. Um, and then- it's like. Oh my God, maybe in the other shows he was acting. <laughs> if anything, this kind of opened my eyes to how, you know, like on the, on, on the one hand, people that watch Full House are generally complaining about the types of shows that I like and wanting them canceled. It honestly made me realize that I was doing that on the flip side too. You know, just be, it's, it's okay not to like a full house, but there is an audience for that. It's not me. I, I was the one that was wrong. And just because those people were accepting a paycheck to be in that show doesn't mean they're not funny. They're just getting paid to do a job. And I have to admit myself, I mean, if working on a show like full house was my way to get into Hollywood, I'm going to do it with a smile on my face, <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. And it's I mean, it was a good gig to take. Um, It was the kind of TV they still wanted some wholesomeness at the time. I mean, I don't know if we have a lot of like well-known like household name shows anymore that fit that bill when I think about it. And this is something that I've only recently thought about largely because of the conversation around Bob Saget passing. And, you know, more recently they had made that movie about, you know, uh, Mr. Rogers and things like that. And so I'd say like within the last year was kind of me starting to put together is like, yeah, we don't have that anymore because we've talked a lot about like programming and how maybe even some things were normalized through shows like Married with Children, like some of the, you know, we put the fun and dysfunctional attitude. Now there's shows that do that, but yeah, I don't think we've got anything these days that's like the seventh heaven. 
if you ever watched that show, because that was so on in the background of too much of my life. Um, I, I like started to try to get into it. And I was, think I was the same way with Full House yeah. because that was the choice. Like we didn't have multiple TVs, multiple screens in the house. Like you very much watched whatever the parents wanted to watch. Um, so I don't know. I, if anybody out there can totally correct that, if there's any household name TV shows that like kind of fit the bill for wholesome family. I'm down to hear it, but I don't know. It seems to be a thing that has died off. Uh, and if I had to speculate, I, I think the reason is, I mean, if it, it's more and more, these entertainment companies are making entertainment for very specific audiences. Whereas something like full house um, was built on the old classic sitcom model of making it, of tr- trying to make it as widely accessible as possible, you know? And, and like, I don't know. I, I think to your point, yes, we should try and go back to having some entertainment that more people can appreciate together and not just this super segmented stuff. But I think there's also, you know, dangers of going too far the other way too, I guess, you know, it's like, yeah. I, I don't know, but um, you know, one thing too, that Bob Saget uh, was involved in, there was a documentary, I believe in the early two thousands done by Penn Gillette and Paul Provenza um, called the aristocrats. It is a documentary uh, about a famous joke that comedians tell each other. It's not necessarily one that's seen the light of day too many times, um, unless you're Gilbert Gottfried. I think, in my opinion, Gilbert Gottfried is one of the few people that could pull it off publicly just on his delivery alone. Um, But yeah, but yeah, I, I was surprised you didn't care for that. Why didn't you care for the aristocrats? Oh, gosh. So uh, to let the nerddom know and get you up to speed, we have, you know, private conversations too, Tim and I, because we are friends IRL, as the cool kids say. Um, So Tim had sent me this video. God, I don't know how long it was. I think it was like eight or nine minutes. It was way too much longer than it should have been. And it's basically Bob Saget sitting down doing his best version of the aristocrats joke. And it's a joke that I confess to Tim, like I have never gotten this joke. (laughs) I don't understand why it's funny. It's more just like painfully long. And I wanted like at the end, I just thought I want however many minutes long this video was like back in my life. Like I need it back. Can I have it back, please? (laughs) And what's sad is at that point, I actively chose not to go look at the length of the video because I didn't want to give it any more of my time. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, like, I I mean, I get it. It's gross. And I, I totally see your point about Gilbert Godfrey because he's got that ridiculous voice where I think that would distract so much. Meanwhile, unfortunately, Unfortunately, in my head, Bob Saget is still Danny Tanner because that was a lot of my intro to him. And I haven't seen a lot of his standup. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was just like listening to Danny Tanner talk as if for once he never had kids like alternate reality. Danny Tanner just not necessarily nailing the worst joke ever. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> like, well, worst is in like it was raw, like the 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 topics in it were wrong and, and gross and bad in that sense. I, I don't want to say that it is a bad joke. I guess a lot of people do find it funny, but I think that's the first time I've ever given a whole effort to sit and listen 
to the whole thing. And I did that for you, Tim, and I still kind of regret it. But at least I I did it in memory of Bob Saget. I thought, you know what? I can do this one for Bob, who is no longer with us. This will be my equivalent of pouring a drink out. I will pour out eight to nine minutes of my life to to uh, respect this thing that Bob Saget did. And it was funny because there are times where he kept just breaking himself, which is kind of the one part that was redeemable about it. I love watching comedians break themselves and mm-hmm. break each other because you really shouldn't be breaking yourself. Like, but it happens sometimes. And then it's just kind of cute to watch like Bob Saget's micro reactions to first he breaks and he, you know, gets out of it and he's laughing and you can tell he's like out of the joke for a second. And then you could just see him processing that he has broken himself and knowing that he needs to recover this and get back in. But it's hard because he's also trying to remember this really long, drawn-out story of a joke. Yeah, for folks that are not aware, the basic premise, and I won't get too into it because, as the Reverend mentioned, it can get pretty wacky. Um, it's it's The premise is uh, a family comes into a talent agent's office. The talent agent asks them, you know, what brings them in today? And they say, we have an act we want to show you. The talent agent goes, show me. And then the family in question does the most vile, horrible things you can think of. Yes. The talent agent says, what are, what was that? And they go, we call this the aristocrats, you know, and it's, it's a joke it's more of an exercise. It's like I mentioned with the Gilbert Gottfried thing, the way he delivers it is, is what gets it for me. And I think, you know, the reason I love the joke, um, you know, thanks to the documentary is it's more about the delivery. It's not the content of it, you know, um, but speaking of Gilbert Gottfried last night, I also uh, rewatched on Paramount plus the roast of Bob Saget. Oh, <laughs> that would be a good one to watch. <laughs> it, it was funny because Gilbert Gottfried was one of the people on there and it was, <laughs> He did this thing where he's like, I'm here today to talk about this false rumor that Bob Saget raped and killed a girl in 1990. It is totally not true that Bob Saget raped and killed a girl. <laughs> you just kept going. <laughs> well, and then didn't they also do like historical roasts? The same was, guy that. And- there was one person involved with the Comedy Central roast shows, Jeff Ross, who they called the uh, roast master general of those shows. He was involved in historical roasts on Netflix, but it's it's same concept, just you know, run by two different companies, even though they share one person. Oh well, I mean, he was on that though. Bob Saget oh, yeah. was, yeah, because he he did a uh, Abe Lincoln, and it was so funny because if you want a little bit of nostalgia tickle for those of you that did watch Full House, they had you know. The Uncle Jesse and Uncle Joey, I think both of them were both on there as other ones. Pretty sure. I know Uncle Jesse was because John Stamos does not age. He has discovered the fountain of youth. I don't know how he did it. Him and Rob Lowe have secrets, man. And I'm telling you. (laughs) But yeah, he was great in that. I thought it was a bummer. Um, I guess he had tweeted like just the night before about how he like he's he was doing a tour when all of this went on. For people that didn't know that, he was out doing like I think like a dark comedy tour. Also, like I thought it had like a dark element to the name, but he had just tweeted about how he was like excited and still invigorated to be in comedy. So, I mean, I'm happy that it's been reported early on because i don't know if they have like an actual cause of death yet uh, uh but that's they did be like six to ten weeks before there's an official- yeah yeah because they're gonna have to figure it out but it did at least say you know because my first thought was oh no 
Did, you know, was there anything illicit? Did we accidentally overdose? Because unfortunately that happens a lot, like, Mm -hmm. especially with comedians, it seems, Um, you know, suicide and overdosing usually due to self-medicating can be an issue. So I was at least kind of relieved to hear that it didn't seem to be drug related. I know that doesn't necessarily answer if it's not the other thing as well, but um, so I hope it was natural causes or something peaceful. He was found in his hotel room from what I understood, but I don't know. I don't get super into the, Oh my God, I need to know exactly how they were found and when and in what position. And (laughs) I just, uh, I was curious enough to click on something that said, you know, no foul play type sitch and it was very vague back then so i don't follow these things very closely for anybody um not even for betty it really just took a while for it to come out you know then you start seeing the news saying you know natural causes etc so i'm sure i will see those things soon but at least early on it doesn't seem to be anything you know like that yeah i mean and it would suck if it did i mean like i i've never heard of him having like a hardcore drug problem but you know it's usually not anybody with a hardcore drug problem that necessarily falls into that it's the people that maybe have not taken drugs in a long time and then think oh there's some cocaine there it's just a little bit and not really you know real not judging it the way they should but um you know by all accounts yeah it it just sounds like that maybe he had a heart attack or something i mean that you know i've I've read the articles too they you know stated like no drugs were found if there were drugs you would think that'd be one of the first things they would say so you know more than likely after uh the autopsy report comes out they'll we'll just find out like yeah maybe he had a brain aneurysm maybe he had a heart attack or just something and hopefully yeah hopefully there wasn't any pain that he had to feel if any yeah because i wouldn't wish that on anybody like just as a general statement to make like Mm -hmm. i don't really wish torture you know suffering on people but i just you know i like to know that you know some of the people that i look up to the long-term comedians right like you don't want a bunch of you know stories where it's all sad reasons for leaving this world but yeah but bob saget will definitely be missed and um you know, talk, talking about america's funniest home videos too i mean that really is, is the prototype for what youtube became you know um, and i i the, you know the fact that he was the even today when people talk about america's funniest home videos he's still very much associated with that show even though he was only there for i think like the first eight years of the show just the first eight though <laughs> yeah you know and but but yeah, he he will he will definitely be missed because you know somebody that has been able to work so successfully in both good humor, you know, Full House, uh, Goody Two Shoes type of humor, and the dirty stuff. Someone that could fluctuate that that takes talent. That does take talent. Gotcha. And then I wanted to correct myself the just to say what the name of the tour was. It was Bob Saget. I don't do negative tour. And that's what he was out doing whenever all of this was, you know, sadly happened. Yeah. So if you get a chance, watch one of his shows, watch one of his stand-up specials. Um, you know, there, he also directed one movie, uh, Dirty Work with Norm MacDonald. I've Don't not seen you. it. <laughs> yeah, it's on HBO Max. It's, I mean... If you're familiar with Norm Macdonald, you know, you're you're generally going to you're going to understand what type of movie you're going to get. It's it's not the Citizen Kane of comedy, but, you know, it's it's in its own way. It's, it's kind of funny. So um, plenty of stuff's out there. So give it a watch. But speaking of giving a watch, how about we talk some big math?
Let's talk big math. Let's do this. It's a Thanksgiving episode, which I did remember really enjoying the first time I, I watched through this. Yeah, I, I kind of found myself that way, too. I mean, I didn't give uh, this episode that big of a score uh, compared to other episodes. But, you know, I think overall, this was the first episode I've encountered this season to where there really wasn't that big of a bad moment, if that makes sense. It seems like the other episodes had like one really bad thing. It's just a lot of this was just meh. <laughs> so you mean Coach Steve actually didn't cameo for once because this was the one that they gave us where Coach Steve didn't cameo. Yes, yes. No Coach Steve, thank goodness. Um, I mean, we'll definitely run into his character again this season, but, you know, the oh, less yeah. again, the better at this point. <laughs> they gave me a break, and that was all I had asked for. Like, even, even I didn't remember that he wasn't in this one. It was just, I, you know, tend to now mention when I watch it and take notes, but this was the one time I was like, oh, hey, look, no Coach Steve for no reason. So... Coach Steve, but one of the themes that I uh, definitely encountered in the story is uh, defying your parents for the first time. And um, in this one, uh, that's kind of ties into Andrew's story about not eating the Thanksgiving meat. Um, and uh, I'll ask you, do you have any, what was your first big memory of you defying your parents? Ooh, I don't know. I'm not really sure how to answer that one because I'm not sure if I ever really defy them. <laughs> um, <laughs> statute of limitations. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know how to say that one, I guess, because I know I don't really feel like I ever successfully defied them as a kid, you mm -hmm. know, because we've we've kind of hinted that I didn't necessarily have the best like situational the, the upbringing. But I mean, I guess it's been more in my later life now, which is a little different than what, you know, is kind of being portrayed here. You know, I've kind of put down a lot of kind of firm boundaries of being done. Mm -hmm. And that has been general genuinely confusing. Um at least for half of the parenthood of mine, but a little bit different when you do that as an adult versus when you like just obstinately defy them as a child, which always seemed like such a delicious thing to fantasize about, but I don't remember ever actually having the nerve to do it. Mostly because we still had corporal punishment in Texas that was just totally fine to like spank your kids. And I just absolutely hated being spanked. And since I lived primarily with a parent who did that, Mm -hmm. um, I just really did my best to do whatever that parent wanted me to do. This is more taking place nowadays. I don't even think uh, a picture of a kid being spanked would be like, you know, this being a cartoon. I don't think that would go over well as being realistic to nowadays, just because so few people really seem to spank anymore. But, uh, but anywho, I just never really remembered defying them in that way. What about you? Oh, my God. You never met my mother. Like, defying her, you had to build up the courage to do that. And, um, and for me, though, it was age 16. Um, I finally got the courage uh, because, like, I, I, from ninth grade to 10th grade, I went from a, a private school to a public school. And even though I hated the everybody that I went to, uh, to school with in the private school, it was at that point, it was still the only world I knew. So I still wanted to go back and visit those people as much as I could. Could, but then my mother one time told me that I couldn't. So I was like, 
I'm gonna, it's like, fine, whatever. And then I uh, packed my stuff and then I ran away from home. Ooh, which mm. consisted of me getting my stuff, getting on a city bus and then going to my dad's place. <laughs> so. That's funny. Cause yeah. Cause by the way, like I, I did totally do stuff behind their backs. Like I, I snuck into mom's liquor cabinet, you know, <laughs> which again, just goes to indicate not necessarily coping well with my life as a kid, if I'm hitting the sauce, <laughs> um, like on a regular basis. Um, but yeah, just same as you, just you, you better be ready. And it was funny, as you mentioned, running away, my mother has a story that I ran away, but it is not true. Um, at all. What happened was, was I just like rode my bike and I went one street further than I was technically supposed to, I guess. And I put my bike like in the backyard so she couldn't find me, Mm. but I didn't do it. So she couldn't find me. I just happened to put my bike back there, which led to her not being able to find me. (laughs) And so she called the police. Um, and then I was grounded for a really long time and she sold my bike. But I never ran away. Like that was the most fucked up thing. It was like I got all that crazy punishment. And I never even ran away. But um, I just happened to be out past dark and one street further than I was supposed to. Nobody thought to maybe call the parents of all the friends I hung out with. But you know, calling the police was totally fine. <laughs> or like doing what like parents in the '80s used to do, like you know, opening up the back door, Tracy, you know, just yelling as loud as you could because mothers have that way of yelling you could be miles away and like a dog whistle you're gonna hear her yell. <laughs> exactly so uh, yeah <laughs> didn't didn't have any openly stuff but that's funny you ran away <laughs> yeah i mean it, it it wasn't like hopping on the back of a train and you know traveling and you know having like all my stuff like tied to like a, a stick or something like that it was just going to my dad's place and i ended up staying with him for uh, a few months but that was my way of defying but as a kid, it can definitely be tough to defy, but there does need to come a time to where you have to put, you know, your foot down at some point, even if I, I think it's going to happen more for older kids. And I think, you know, the, uh, the age as they're represented in big mouth is probably right around a start where you're going to see defying, but I, I think it is very much socially important for a child to be able to defy under the right circumstances, you know? Oh, yes. And I think this is something that I hope we figure out and learn, like that we need to maybe have an environment where our kids feel comfortable talking to us about things Mm -hmm. um, versus this weird fear dynamic that seems to come in a long history. Um, But yeah, it shouldn't need to boil up to a point of defiance. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I don't understand why there is an issue with like just encouraging a good conversational relationship with your kids. I don't know. Some people look at me like, oh, ho, ho. well, you don't have children, so you don't understand. It's like, well, but I've worked with them and I used to be one. And like, they can totally handle conversations. Like they yeah. can even handle some tough conversations if we didn't project onto them our insecurities around talking about certain things. So, I mean, and even some of that can come from straight admitting to your kid, like, hey, this is a topic that's awkward to talk about, but I still think we need to talk about it. Let's practice having a weird conversation. Um, because I don't know, I did just, just my, my, my little belief of something that I wish we were teaching, like, and it's not too late for us to learn as adults either. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think for me, 
you know, as a parent myself, I, 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 you know, looking back, I think there have been times, you know, I, my kids have definitely defied me on, on some occasions. I mean, they wouldn't be my kids either, either way, but I, I think a lot of it does boil down to the fact that sometimes parents can get so lost in the day-to-day minutia of being a parent that they don't take the time to remember that, you know, this little creature that, you know, spawned from, uh, spawned from, you know, your loins and whatnot is is a tiny human themselves and you know a lot of times parents do have that just listen to me attitude when it should be ideally a perfect world of allowing them to talk now you want to make sure that they know who is boss but you can do that while still you know allowing them the freedom to speak up because if you're making it to where they're feeling upset that they can't tell you they broke a dish what if they get pregnant Oh, exactly. And I know that's something I've even, you know, had conversations a little bit more with my older of the step kiddos. Mm-hmm. But, you know, both of my stepkids know if they come to me with something, I promise I will do my best to not react in a very angry or super negative way to the best of my ability. Right. Because I'm still going to be hearing some news. So I want to set an expectation that, you know, I'm not like going to be able to lock down entirely. But as long as you're coming to me with things and trying to have an honest conversation or like work on something like, hey, you need help fixing a situation, like something as minor as spilling something, for example, Uh um, can, yeah, come to me. Like if you don't know how to clean it, come to me. And just making sure that it kind of is clear that as a parent, I do understand because yes, I am a step parent, but I'm still in a parental role is my job is really there to guide when I'm needed mm-hmm. in that sense. So yes, if any of my stepkids has an issue from spilling something and not knowing how to clean it to maybe they're having a fight or dealing with stuff at school, I want to give good advice for that as best as I can. I want them to know I don't want to, I'm not going to be interested in being mad at them, Um, especially if they're coming to me for help. Even if it's like, hey, I've been cheating in this class and I realize that's wrong and I don't want to do it anymore. It's like, well, then we need to have some bigger conversations, right? Like you can still kind of guide and teach uh, and it doesn't need to come from necessarily like the traditional view of like the parent being an overlord in the situation, which is great because that is something, uh, a theme that I had noticed or something that got brought up that I do like in this episode, but I'm going to leave it at that and bring it up for the good things later. There we go. Well, another thing that uh, they they ended up uh, discussing in the episode in terms of themes um, kind of goes along with uh, what Jesse has been experiencing. And that's if you have parents that have split up, whether it's divorce or they're just separated and you as a kid, you see them together and they're having a good time, how conflicting that could be. Um, I, I know you mentioned that, you know, you come from a household to where, you, you know, you, you have like a stepmother, I guess. So your parents did split at some point. Did you ever encounter anything like Jesse encountered in this episode or were your parents grateful that they split like mine? <laughs> uh, I can't. <laughs> God, You're in headlights, how, to this, <laughs> how to put this as PC as possible. <clears throat> I don't recall a single time where there was even a successful they don't they didn't talk my parents I don't remember them ever speaking to each other Mm -hmm. I mostly remember being 
the door would be opened and I was expected to get myself to and from, um, or, you know, my father would pick us up or however it was like, I don't really remember some of the early, early exchanges where I was a baby, mm-hmm. but definitely it never got better. It, it wasn't something like, you know, Jesse's parents didn't speak and were constantly kind of digging at each other and stuff like that. But now it seems like it does, it did hit a cool stasis, um, a topic you know, I feel strongly about is in regards to blended families. So this particular theme did stand out to me a lot, but I never even, God, I never fantasized about my parents getting back together. Uh, I fantasized a lot about being able to live with my dad, but never that I recall did I ever hope or even want my parents to get back together at any point. (laughs) I don't know you. Uh, And by the way, I did have a stepdad too. I've had two stepfathers, um, over time. So they did both eventually remarried. So I, I didn't, but we never had like the blended thing, like the whole idea of having any meal together that never happened. I had two Christmases. I had two birthdays. Like it was very much, I got dropped off. There was a transfer of ownership. And then my dad had me for a few days or like halfway through Christmas, there would be the transfer of ownership. And like, I would either spend Christmas morning in one place and Christmas evening in the other. Like it was so parallel. Uh Um, And that's at least what it's called now, the style of co-parenting, parallel parenting. Like they really didn't. And I don't even know how much they even spoke on the phone because it wasn't like they could just email information, you know, like parents nowadays, they can at least just forward like the bill or just shoot an email or a text saying, Hey, baby Tracy's doctor is now Dr. Jebediah Smith off of fuckity fuck three, two, one street, something like that. Um, Now it's like, it can happen seamlessly in the background, like that that parallelness, but like, I don't even know how much they even shared, like just information about me because I was around for a lot of phone calls, right? Like that's how information happened. I was a kid. I wasn't like just leaving or doing my own thing in my bedroom. So (laughs) they didn't talk much. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like I remember as a kid looking at pictures of my parents when they were married and thinking, why did they ever get together? (laughs) They just were two completely separate people. Even, even pictures of when they were first married and and in love, they just like, it's like, why are these two people sitting together, holding each other's hand? They both look uncomfortable. It's, It's not natural. They shouldn't be there. Like I remember bits and pieces, like my parents split, um, you know, they separated, they didn't get divorced until like 30 years afterwards. Um, but, um, I remember bits and pieces of what it was like living with them. And like, I remember my father never talking you know, which coming from me, which is a big, big shock for people that know me, his father didn't talk much. What? But, um, but, but yeah, like even going into adulthood, a few times they would like to get together. Like I, I found it weird. Like, um, like as, as an adult, uh, you know, when my mother had her brain, uh, uh, brain tumor issues, like there were, there was like a good two month period where my dad started, uh, you know, like take her to her appointments every now and then. And then they were sort of somewhat getting along. They were, you know, playing nice because she, you know, she got there, but you know, her, her being the type of person that she is, uh, the moment he screwed up once, you know, her original self came out <laughs> and they, they never did it. They, they never did that again, but yeah, yeah, I, I never had any sort of illusions that, you know, they were going to get back together and be peaceful because 
you know, it was a perfect example early on of the fact that sometimes adults just aren't going to be together forever, you know, and yeah. that's a lesson that's, it's sad. I had to learn it that way, but it's, it's a lesson that I, I think everybody should have, because even if you are a child from a successful parent household, that does not guarantee that you're going to find a partner that's going to, you know, that's going to be as loving as the household you're in, you know? Oh, exactly. But uh, I, I still sometimes like go back to like, how did my parents get together? Like, I, I, what's funny is mine was actually because she was originally dating his brother. So it's one of those charming little stories. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> Whoopsie doodle. Great of family reunions, I guess. Well, the second charming story was she told him that she couldn't get pregnant. <laughs> so you know that's just a recipe for a happy marriage yeah to quote the line from this episode of big mouth condoms are for millionaires oh yes i actually kind of started taking just a separate little like note section of quotable quotes so just the quotes that make me giggle <laughs> and him saying condoms are for millionaires was probably and obviously that was jesse's dad greg yeah, but yeah. uh <laughs> condoms are for millionaires was pretty great all right, let's uh, move on to the next theme here. And th th this is one I think most people have done at least once. And that's wallowing in self-pity after professing, after being denied by a potential love. Oh, unrequited love. So sad. But I think, yeah, I do think that most people have experienced that to some level. Um yeah, I mean, I don't even know if there's any particular story worth getting into. Yeah. Yes, I, I did have a crush every other week. And uh, yeah, I was also really unpopular for a good chunk of my life. So, you know, the bat and average of those folks are not very high for it actually being reciprocated back. So that one was like, yeah, I, I feel I feel like that one hit probably a, a, a lot of situations in my life. Yeah. Yeah, kind of same here, too. I mean, like, I, you know, for someone who didn't uh, have the courage to really talk to women during high school, there were still plenty of loves that I encountered that they didn't know my existence, but I was just crushed that they didn't like me. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> I mean, I, I was in a small enough situation, all of my schools from, you know, K through high school and then even college like wasn't exactly a huge world so mm. to me it was a, like I almost wonder it's a little bit more unfortunate because they did know who I was like <laughs> at least you had the uh, the anonymous factor of like well you know they don't even know who I am I've just been kind of watching this person go to their locker but you know when you've got a graduating class of like 70 most people know exactly who you are and it's an act of choice to not be interested in you. So I took it a little bit more personally early on, I think. <laughs> yeah. I guess that's the beauty of Grand Rapids for me. It was a big enough city that you know, we had bigger graduating classes and yeah, there were plenty of people I went to school with. They're like, I went to school with you. <laughs> yeah. I've worked in offices that were bigger like numbers than my high school. So <laughs> 
Yeah. I mean, same with me and Apple, which is like, sometimes I hesitate stating, stating how much I dislike that on a public forum, dislike working at that place on a public forum like this, because, you know, I'm sure they're like, if somebody that I did work with, but I never encountered heard that they would just think, Oh, he's being an asshole. But I, for me, it's like, I had specific reasons, but that doesn't mean everybody who works there is an asshole. You know? <laughs> Exactly. I think my relationship or my the way I relate to that is like with a Lubbock Christian University. <laughs> oh. yeah. It's like not everybody there was an asshole. There are some and there are some people that I am friends with and possibly even one that listens to the show. So I'm going to throw it out there that, yes, there are some people who are nice and that, you know, I still talk to from time to time. But, yeah, for the most part, didn't super care for my experience there. Um, it's actually going to be inspiring at least a chapter or so of my book. So, uh, you know. No, there's that <laughs> coming to bookshelves soon um but don't say soon <laughs> <laughs> soon ish i guess but um one thing too i guess uh, we can talk about is that you know again you know parents when it comes to kids that deal with this unrequited love it's like i know my parents never sat me down to have a conversation about stuff like this i didn't sit my kids down unfortunately and have have a conversation about how much that can suck you know it's like it's like a lot of the, a lot of these like relationship things we just have to experience and now of course a parent's not going to be able to prepare a kid for absolutely every single bad thing that's going to happen that's an unrealistic goal but something like this i think should be a part of the conversation. As a parent, I do feel bad that I did not take the time to have that conversation to have a talk with my kids about, you know, sometimes you're going to fall for somebody and they're not going to be into you and that's going to suck, but that's okay. Right. And I think that's where I do appreciate a trend where people want to talk about teaching emotional regulation. You know, every now and then you see those posts come up of what's the one thing they don't teach in school that they should. And, you know, everybody on Facebook and their dog is like putting stuff like how to vote in America and, you know, politics stuff or, you know, they need to learn how to balance a checkbook which nobody does anymore. So that person ages themselves. But, you know, something that I do see trending in that bigger conversation is this idea of teaching emotional regulation. And I want to, I want to throw it out there to you, Tim, because you said something that just made me sad. Like, don't feel bad that you weren't given that tool to like, you weren't ever told to teach that to your kid. Right. Like we weren't even taught emotional regulation, which is great because, you know, we have mentioned like some of the the podcast stuff that I want to start doing, um, you know, with the new year and everything. Uh It's a big topic I want to touch on is that it's not too late to learn emotional regulation. And this even goes into we touched on this in the last episode and where we talked about the jealousy monster and we're going to feel big emotions. But we weren't taught how to deal with that. And especially like, sure, we we kind of got the passive where your hormones are just going crazy. Well, it turns out blaming it on hormones like doesn't actually do enough. Like kids don't understand what that means. Yeah, sure. You understood what it meant, mom and dad, because you did grow out of it. And so a lot of it got less for you. But when we're not learning coping skills for these things early on, I think it manifests into a lot of what we see nowadays where people are, you know, my favorite term, quote, a slave to their emotions. When really you can be taught concepts on how to respond instead of react early on. So yeah, it makes sense seeing this stuff happen with kids, but Uh it's so depressing to realize how often it's still carrying on into adulthood 
these practices of moping over unrequited love. And, you know, it's sad and it's, it goes back to, it's not too late to, to learn it. So I don't know. I wanted to throw it out there. Don't beat yourself up for not knowing what to teach your kids. Like when we weren't even given those tools, we didn't have the example of how to teach these things. So now it's like, great. Does public school need to come in and do this? Do we have to somehow teach the parents on how to teach this? So how do we do it now? Yeah. And fair enough. I mean, I, I think, you know, the point is that, yeah, I, we need to have these conversations with, with kids because I think this is something that, you know, the parents can help with, you know, in terms of just, you know, whether even if it's just bringing up your own experience from a similar age, you know, just just the simple fact that a kid can know that, you know, you as a parent had a similar experience, you know, nine times out of 10, that's going to be enough for them to be comfortable to be able to talk to you about uh, stuff like that. So, right. And I think a lot of it goes back to making certain topic topics non-taboo and the way you do that is talking about it before it comes up like i don't know how do you like to be trained on a new process at your new job tim <laughs> do you want to just be sat down in front of the computer and be like hey do this thing or maybe a little bit of like heads up before you have to sit down in front of the computer and deal with it right and mm. the same concept can totally apply to some of this stuff with kids like maybe the idea of having strong emotions shouldn't be brought up as a reaction to the child experiencing strong emotions. It goes back to if you're using logic brain to talk to somebody who's really in emotion brain, which a child normally is when they're dealing with their strong emotions, it's not speaking the same language. So it's also getting that message out there that, you know, much like how we adults learn and absorb information, it's going to be taken better by a child who is not wrapped up in an emotional state at the time. And that's where it's like, you know, you can have arguments of when is too young to introduce certain topics. And I'm just kind of turning into why are any of them taboo to talk about ever is kind of my question. Like, why not just have the type of relationship with your child, your child, that you can talk about anything? So uh, the example I think of is one you brought up on episode 100. Think about that little girl who got taught to that, you know, the name for her private parts was Cookie. Oh, yes. The whole like, oh, that I even hate saying the story of like, is the whole idea of knowing what it means and mm -hmm this family member licked it. Like I, I cannot say the whole sentence that yeah. was the quote, <laughs> but, uh, and I'm just like, Oh, that's just mortifying. But yeah, like we don't need cutesy names. We don't need to hide it. And you know what? My unpopular opinion, I'm going to say it here. If we want schools to stop teaching it, we absolutely have to find a way to teach it as parents. Like we do. Like if we don't want the school deciding what's taught and when, we got to do it because public school is just responding to public problems because that's what they do. When something is a problem and it hits society, they have to find a way to address it. And that goes from, hey, kids need to know how to read in order to do basic work to, hey, kids need to graduate high school without the STDs or be able to graduate high school and maybe not have a pregnancy so that they could, you know, get a good start on life before they incur something that's, you know, really going to be hard to recover from financially. That's so, a blessing. <laughs> oh, but it's a blessing. Yeah. It's not a blessing when it's, you know, in the backseat of somebody's pickup truck and a seatbelt and like jammed into your ribs. That's not a blessing. That's a mistake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, speaking of mistakes, the next theme here kind of relates to Missy, and that is intro to marijuana. Yes, I honestly thought it was hilarious and such a great display of how you can just make bad decisions when you're in that wrapped up emotionally. Because at the beginning of it being brought up, Missy went from like never smoking in the converse and in, in, like never going to smoke. Nope. I care too much about my brain development mm-hmm. to hearing her cousins talking a little bit of poo. And then it got in Missy's head that she's uncool. And then she like illogically runs up, grabs it and like sucks it down with a vengeance. Right. So I thought that was actually um, a really good portrayal of how you can make a bad decision just based on feeling emotional and vulnerable at the time, because Missy's usually so much more logic minded Mm -hmm. that it's really a standout when her emotional mind takes over. So when she is more childlike and less of that mature state. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, nobody, nobody sets out to, you know, Hey, I'm going to buy this cocaine so I can get a great drug habit going. (laughs) No, you, you, you buy it. But like as a kid, when do you first remember hearing about marijuana? So I know (laughs) my, my mother actually found a highlighter pipe that my Somebody who lived in our house at some point had, I'll put it that way. So I'm not, I'm not outing anybody. I know we're not like a huge show and I don't even think they listen to this, but we did have like kind of a few revolving people that lived in our house. So I will put it that way. Um, So that's like kind of the first time I felt it was close to home. And uh, I knew there were parties where people were, you know, usually drinking because this is like, you know, out there in Texas, but I knew some people did weed, but I never met anybody. Like I never saw them do it. I'd never been around it. I don't even think I had smelled it outside of like a dare classroom. It was like, you know, don't do drugs. Here's, this is what weed smells like. So if you smell this, you should go the other way was kind of the way it was covered that I vaguely remember. Yeah. Weird because, you know, that also could be like, oh, that's what weed smells like. So if I want to try it, walk towards those folks. (laughs) But uh, yeah, uh, I didn't really even get an opportunity to try it until college. So it being introduced, because I think these guys are still in middle school at this point. so well, Miss, yeah, yeah Missy is, but I think um, her cousins are college age. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, they make sense. They're casual as it's all get out about it. I mean, they're walking down a sidewalk and smoking. So. Yeah, for me, I guess kind of the same thing. I mean, for like the musicians that I liked uh, in the 80s, especially, um, you know, you, you would hear about marijuana, um, um, you know, like MTV occasionally or something like that. So I was definitely aware of it. And then come high school, um, you know, like sometimes I would hang out with the stoners and they would definitely have access to it. But I'm, I was kind of in the same boat. I didn't really try for the first time until college. And like Clinton, the first time I tried it, I did not get high. <laughs> You know, it's like I didn't understand. Like, I, I get you're supposed to inhale it, but I just didn't know the whole process of what you were supposed to do. So I didn't. Oh, man, I got every stereotype of high, every direction you could take that joke. Like I laughing uncontrollably because someone was asking me for my phone number. And the fact that I was listing just numbers to somebody for some reason just made me lose it in laughing. 
And then there's like the whole point. So, you know, this was back when I was in college. This was Lubbock Christian University, funny enough, where I finally got introduced to doing this and tried it. And uh, I remember I was in the back seat of their car because we left campus because we weren't that dumb. We weren't going to do it on campus. And um, we left campus. We were like legit behind a dumpster. So everything stereotype about like smoking a joint behind a dumpster, I guess. And so they like take me home. They're like, all right, this cracker is high as shit. Can't let her out on the streets. Let's take her back to the dorms. So I remember being in the back seat. And I just got so paranoid. <laughs> I was like, there's lights behind us. I can tell it's a cop, man. I can tell by the color it's the cops. Uh, I'm over 21, so just tell them that I'm drunk. <laughs> and like, it was just some van. Like, it wasn't even anybody. So, and then like munchies and chips that tasted awesome that night, but terrible the next morning. Like, it was magical. So, it was pretty much everything that I guess I had been told it might have been like. But that was one thing that I thought was interesting about like Missy's, the interpretations of being stoned are always what take me out of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, because, like, I don't know, uh, does anybody hallucinate? hallucinate like on weed it's just the thing that always irritates me with shows so i'll mention this bad thing now i didn't like the portrayal of missy being high Uh because i feel like it's always unrealistic when they make people who have been smoking weed like somehow hallucinating that they're on a sitcom that's definitely totally different drugs yeah and i've yeah i've not heard of any hallucinatory effects of weed it's possible i guess if you smoke like snoop dog levels who knows? I, I, but again, I've never really heard that. Yeah. It's like the more harder stuff is, you know, LSD, that's going to get you hallucinating. I, yes. you know, I know from experience. So. Yes. That that's probably like the end of my colorful things I have tried, by the way, we have now hit the two things that the Reverend has tried ever. I've never gotten curious. I don't know. Like the other things just had, I Googled the consequences and went, no, like I like I know I don't want my teeth to fall out. No, I don't want sores all over my body. No, I don't want my weird crocodile skin. Um, but yeah, like I don't know what it is with shows because I feel like we are knowledgeable enough about how marijuana works that we would stop doing this. So it's just kind of frustrating to still see it like on the reg. In a way, though, it's kind of the laziness the same way that like television shows do religion because if you think about it nine times out of ten if you see a pastor on tv he's dressed like a catholic priest with the collar and everything i mean like they do it in south park even though they don't specifically mention he's a catholic priest well well, that's that's i mean i know they have some catholic stuff on south park but still i mean commonly again like even seventh heaven i think he did not dress in like a suit or anything but like a priest but anyway Different story for a different day day there, I guess. Let's move on to the next topic here. And this is kind of uh, ties along with Leah's storyline. And that's dating a bad boy or a bad girl. Yes. And that one, I'm still, we're still waiting to see how that one plays out. It's kind of the intro part of the idea. What's his name again? Val. Val, thank you. So Leah is dating Val, who is one of Jay's brothers. Good callback to the the ookie on the cookie situation. Um, Well, I mean, just in case you forgot that that was them, you know, because at that point, this has been a long time. Not everybody re-binges or anything when it comes up to new seasons. And I think that was pretty early on. So I understand the callback. It made sense. Um, I thought it was interesting that he uh, kind of did some side conversation uh with nick 
And it's like, uh, and I get into this more when, when we recap bad, but it's like, it, I don't know if that was imagined or not, but I guess it wasn't because he brought up the, you know, having sex with her until she happy cries like to Leah's face. So maybe yeah. that was like all based on reality, but yeah, I also am curious though, because even in this episode, he had mentioned that, you know, he was brought up in a home that doesn't really have some good values and he finds it you know, refreshing to be in the home. So it'll be fun to see how it plays out on, is he evil or does he really like her? And he's trying to, break this intergenerational thing which really has kind of been a theme of the entire episode when you think about it like almost all of it kind of comes into this intergenerationalness like it's not necessarily missy's as directly but well, i thought it was interesting think about it a lot of her issues at the end of that episode were with her parents you know mm-hmm. generational um for me, I guess when it comes to the dating, the bad boy, bad girl, I mean, more often than not, from what I hear, um, especially from lady friends who have dated bad boys in the past, it's not that they want to date a bad person. It's just that nine times out of 10, this person that has the label of being the bad boy or the bad girl is pretty damn confident. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Could be a confidence thing, misread, right? Because there's that narcissism, um, <laughs> that that air of of the confidence can be kind of taken different ways. I think, um, yeah. And I don't know if I would call it confidence with him. He was more of a bravado thing, but even she kind of seemed to be into the story, you know, of him being from a rougher household and coming into theirs. Mm -hmm. So there is a little bit also of uh, the saving saintness that is a little bit encouraged, especially in dating women were encouraged kind of more to think that way, I think, than men necessarily. But this is my datedness from my growing up. So not necessarily talking about nowadays, Uh, just stuff that's kind of traditionally been held of, you know, saving them. I've, I feel like I've known more women who have that savior mentality of, but they can be better with me than I have men taking on that same thing. Yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah, I mean, because it's even though we're talking about the concept of dating, I mean, it's, you know, w- women typically have had to deal with a lot more in, in dating uh, than guys. I mean, guy, you know, for uh, being a white guy, dating can be pretty darn easy, you know, um, because I don't have to worry about, you know, is my date going to turn into a monster? Are they going to do something bad or, or, or whatnot? I don't have to worry about uh, stuff like that myself. But when it comes to, I guess, kids, though, like what types of conversations do you have with your kids to kind of prepare them to be a little more discerning, I guess, in the in the people that they pick in terms of potential partners? Because you do, you want like, like for me, like if my daughter was like dating a guy who was like in a gang or something like that, I'd be upset. But, you know, how do you prepare your kids for, you know, picking the right person? Well, that's what's kind of funny is emphasis on preparing kids for stuff when really you should just be kind of living in a way that you'd hope they'd replicate. I think a lot of the head bumping that happens between kid v parent is you got to think about it. Your kids are kind of in a front row seat to your life. So they're probably more aware of how hypocritical you are 
than you are. And yeah. so they see it. There was actually a really beautiful version of kind of the same sentiment um, that I'm going to put out there where it had said something like, you know, somebody once asked me, how do you get your child to read books? And I just replied by reminding them that kids learn through replication. So I just read more books. And that's really what it comes down to, I think, with a lot of things. Think of how many humans you know that just kind of have shit relationships in general. And I'm not even talking about romantic ones. I'm talking about friendships that Mm. are just crappy. And I'm not saying that you need to not be friends with somebody like the second you have a disagreement. No, my God, you should totally learn how to talk through those because it's going to make you a better human too. Like hopefully both of you, and that's the kind of friendship you have. But, you know, ultimately your goal is for you. You should only try to control yourself in that sitch. But yeah, like I think a lot of it just goes with, you know, if you want your child to emotionally regulate, check yourself and make sure you're emotionally regulating. Mm -hmm. If you want your child to have good, healthy friendships and relationships, maybe you should be taking a time at how it, it looking at how you hold, create and are involved in your friendships. And I'm not saying that it's necessarily like a one for one trade, but I just don't think there's as much sitting down and having a lesson plan like laid out necessary when they are actions that you can kind of just show them are successful by doing them. Because uh, there's a lot behind the monkey see monkey do and kids aren't really good at being told to do one thing where the living example of the generation that has survived in front of them is actively doing something different. It literally creates a conflict in their mind. So I don't know. I, I'm not sure how common the bad boy, bad girl temptation really is out there to necessitate like a lesson plan around it. But I would kind of wonder if those people you know, or possibly just kind of like spinning off of some unhealthy examples they have seen. And it's not even just your own parents that you have for examples anymore either, because it goes back to TV being programming in that sense that it normalizes Mm -hmm. things. So it's even looking at what kind of TV is your child consuming, because these are giving them examples of how adults act. And that's where they're going to pick up some of this stuff. So this is where I go into, I think some of our programming is a little damaging for younger minds, especially when they are learning learning how to make friends because they're seeing some of this weird toxic crap that we've made look cute and thinking that that's what they're really supposed to emulate. And I think that's just kind of turned into some really toxic friendship dynamics that we have nowadays. Well, speaking of that, that kind of ties into uh, the next theme here um, uh, with Andrew's father of family flaws staying in the family through the generations. Now, um, you know, I, as someone with kids myself, I know when I first had my kids, you know, I said, you know, I'm not going to do the things that my parents did to me, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, now I'm at the point where like my youngest is about to turn 16 here in a couple months. Um, and you know, my kids are essentially are already grown here. And I, I, I look back and see like, I made a lot of the same mistakes my parents made too. It's going to happen. It's, it's going to happen, but it's, 
it's like, what do you, what can you do? I guess in terms, let's use the prepare word again, you know, preparing uh, your kids for uh, the future like that. Do you have that conversation with like what I've done, like with my oldest, uh, for example, like, you know, I've, I've started with him trying to push the importance of, you know, being able to talk more, being able to, you know, express yourself more in terms, in terms of your emotions, whether they, they're good or bad. Um, but like, how how do you do that? <laughs> you know, I, I go ahead. Well, I mean, that really comes down to I'm a big proponent of shadow integration. And Jungian psychology is really fascinating to me. So a lot of it is literally looking at your own shit and understanding that some of it stinks. And I think as far as how that relates to the relationship with kids and how that can go is maybe you need to be honest that sometimes your shit is going to stink. And I say it in a funny way, but I still very much remember um, my stepson when I first had the conversation that I can be wrong. He looked me right in the eyes and went, you're the only adult who can be wrong. And it came from such a genuine space because I was, I think I was the first adult to tell him that I I can make mistakes. Mm -hmm. I can spill things. I can say things wrong. So I think a lot of it comes with even just being willing to admit to ourselves as parents that we can be wrong, but then also being able to let the kids see behind the, behind the curtains a little bit that you don't know everything, which is not something that we've traditionally done from a parent to child relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, as much as we want to say we've gotten away from older ways of thinking about it, we still kind of have this weird toxic familialism where you're supposed to listen to dad because he is your father and you're supposed to listen to your mother because she is your mother. But when you come from, you know, a house that was, say, abusive, for example, it wasn't okay just because he was your father. So maybe kids actually do need more to respect you other than you birthed them, that you contributed to them existing. Because maybe potentially we pick on early, we pick up early on that that's not the best reason to listen to somebody. Right. It's not necessarily the best reason to accept how you're being treated by somebody either. So, yeah, like maybe we can just come down off of this idea that parents are supposed to be viewed as always right. And yeah, sure, there's things that you're going to instruct on factually, but uh, there's even times where that's going to be wrong. I think one of the funnier examples of me going, oh my God, guys, I accidentally told you something that wasn't true was talking about taste buds. Because when I was a kid, they were still teaching that, you know, you taste sour with the front and you taste like with different parts. And they found out that's not really how that works. Mm -hmm. So I wound up needing to correct something and then explaining that, yeah, it turns out like after they had taught me that as a kid, at some point they science and studying things like discovered that things like ideas and thoughts can evolve and change. So, you know, I could have been wrong even in my behavior or my attitude or yelling. Some of the cooler trends I've seen um, have to do with something called positive parenting, where it's like, no, if you lose your cool on your kid, you owe it to them to apologize, not just because you yelled at them, and that's really not cool, but also to teach them how to apologize, because that's also an important skill that they can learn just by showing them how to do it by doing it with them. 
also talking, you know, I, I think of my youngest, like uh, he would have a habit of making a mess, but then trying to hide it because he was embarrassed by it. And, um, you know, ultimately what I found worked with him the best was me being able to, to tell him, you know, it kind of talking to him about, you know, think about it from a different point of view. Let's say you're the adult and you encountered this mess. Would you not be upset if you encountered that? And he ended up saying, no, yeah, I would. And so it's, I, I was able to tell him, you know, like, as a parent, yeah, you are going to be upset because it's just an initial reaction that comes. But as your parent, I see this mess. It's my job to, you know, make sure that it gets taken care of. So, yeah, being able to talk to your kids, uh, you know, it, it, it's definitely important. You don't want to do like my mother, like, don't swear in my fucking house. That was right. <laughs> but, yeah, challenging intergenerational family attitudes and beliefs like, oh, that's it's such a delicious topic to see covered on here that it kind of contributed to my end score at the very end. But really did like love this idea of bringing up that maybe just because you were raised by an angry disciplinarian doesn't mean that you need to continue that. And especially if you start seeing that you're doing things like that. But in order to see you becoming like your parent, you need to be willing to look at yourself and look for those things that you were willing to identify are flaws within yourself. And that's more of the shadow integration thing. So that that's where you stop the intergenerational traumas and things like that is really looking inward at yourself and then figuring out where you'd like to change it. And then I would also say, if you want to help your child be able to challenge those things. So, hey, if there are things that you didn't nail, maybe they can nail it for the next generation, which is kind of some of the point of how we're how I feel that we should be raising kids is so that it gets better with the next generations, you know, give them that openness to have conversations with you and hell, it might even improve your ability to parent your kid because you're getting feedback from like your customer in a way, you know? Yeah. And, and most importantly, parenting does not end the moment they move out of the house. They're always going to need a parent. And if you are a good parent, you're going to do what you can to give them that support. Exactly. It's another mentality in our culture. I don't understand. Is this the boot at 18 mentality? Like, really? It's not like a download. There's no manual of stuff that you're supposed to teach. Like, I'd rather just develop a relationship where they feel comfortable, you know, leaning on me in need. Uh, I think that's a good family relationship to have. Indeed, indeed. Now, the last theme here, um, this kind of ties into the brief appearance of Jay and Lola, is being nice to someone after a messy breakup. And I don't necessarily mean romantic, obviously with Jay and Lola, it was a romantic thing, but you can have a breakup with a friend and still end up with a situation to where you find out that that person that you are angry with has had something bad happen to them. And as a human being, maybe you don't like that person, but you don't want to find out that, you know, they've been hurt or something like that. So it's like you want to, you think about, should I reach out, you know, and those can be interesting situations. Oh, exactly. I mean, he didn't tell her that it was from him. So he actually did it as a genuine anonymous thing. And, you know, they're pretty aware of each other's situations, right? Mm -hmm. And he knows that, you know, while he's got his own stuff that he deals with, Lola's alone, like a lot. Like she's portrayed as being alone. That's some of the stuff that we've kind of 
you know, more or less kind of nagged on with this show is like actually treating her situation with some seriousness because she is basically a neglected child. But I thought it was really sweet to kind of throw in there, um, you know, this little little moment with Jay. I, I did think it was kind of funny, him in the trash can. <laughs> it's like, trash turkey isn't for fucking. Like, I've got more respect than that or something like that. It's like, trash turkey's for eating. <laughs> <laughs> and so he's eating the turkey that got thrown in the trash by uh, Nick's dad. So, but yeah, that was sweet. I liked that it was brief because, yeah, I don't think that they would have had, like, enough to really contribute to the story. But that was just such the perfect amount of their story cameoing in Thanksgiving. I think any more than that, it would have been like a Coach Steve of it, like just unnecessary. Well, I, and I'm glad, kind of glad, too, that, you know, he didn't like write a note. He didn't like knock at her door and say, here's this food or something like that. He just did something kind for someone who needed it, you know, because like if you're in emotional status, obviously with somebody you've broken up with and something like that could occur, you know, even if you do try and reach out with, you know, a, a nice effort it could easily go downhill as well because the other person may not want to talk to you, may not want to have anything to do with you, even if you are trying to do a nice gesture, you know? Right. Well, let's talk about what we liked good. I, you know, I saw your list. I know uh, you even uh, mentioned uh, collecting some of your favorite lines from this episode. What would you say they did good in this episode? So I really do love this topic of intergenerational attitudes, beliefs, anger. Mm-hmm. Um, so I prefer to just call it what I think it is, which is sometimes trauma. Like some of the ways that we've taught and disciplined have been traumatic. And to me, that fits that bill for intergenerational trauma. There's even like some studies around like that specific side of it, like in mm-hmm. mental health and everything of, you know, the whole like, you know, mother having depression tends to come down to the kids. Like there's even intergenerational depression and things like that. So intergenerational anger being brought up specifically is more or less what they called it. Um, The turkey, like a lot of really solid wisdom from this Thanksgiving turkey, how anger has haunted your family for generations. The turkey talking about the story Marty told at supper and then even ends it a little bit later with, but Andrew, maybe you can break the cycle of Glauberman rage. And that's the kind of introspective like conversation you need to have in your own head. Cause granted you have to keep in mind, like these turkeys, like, right. It's not really talking. It's really more representing a conversation that Andrew's having in his own mind. I think the like model, it's an yeah. epiphany, right? It's not the hormone monster. I don't even remember if anybody else actually spoke or interacted with the turkey. Whereas, you know, the hormone monsters, other kids see them and interact with them. Um, The love bugs, others can see and interact with them. So I think some of the inanimate objects are very much representing the kids having conversations just with themselves. And so that's the kind of conversation you need to be willing to have in your head. And now I don't think Andrew's angry yet but how many people would still continue to grow and he has had like some of those angry flashes like those moments where he feels like he's being like his dad Mm -hmm. so maybe this is him catching it early before he becomes that teenager that's really angry that becomes that adult that's really angry and then you're so set in being angry that you don't know how to unlearn it Mm -hmm. and even so you're not even going to want to unlearn it if you don't bother to look inward and see that you're doing it So I really 
can't express how much I love that this topic got brought up in this show. Um, I also really love that love languages got brought up in that sense. Um, the realization by Andrew that his dad does show love in ways. Because what have we learned? Well, he was also raised by a very angry man who was then also raised by a very angry man. So, I mean, and Andrew's father never chose to be raised by somebody angry. Mm -hmm. So he is a product of that, but he does have ways that he shows love, which is the same way every father did in that family. It got taught as this turkey, which is kind of nice because he's it was kind of a mix of seeing him accept that his dad does show love in ways, but then also still question if he wants to continue that being how. So I just thought it was a very beautiful theme to touch on. It's something that I wish we talked about more as, as a culture and normalize this kind of thought process and, you know, unpacking what we could do better so that we're not negatively affecting our kids, like just because of the way our parents raised us, because we didn't have control over that. We didn't get to pick who raised us. We got who we got, but we can kind of try to pick what lessons to take away from that. But you have to realize that you can put that effort in there, I guess, which is, you know, it's hard. It goes back to when you're not teaching emotional regulation or even to that sense, shadow integration. Like it, it yeah, it, it would be rough to stumble across that, I guess, the idea that you can change like the cycle of anger. Um, uh, last two good things that I really liked. I, I like Jesse's parents for once. I loved the idea of a blended family getting along. I'm a big fan of this. I even liked the mother's quote. Uh, whenever she was explaining to Jesse, you know, Jesse was like, but you guys were getting along, you know, they were having the emotional conversation on the bed. And the mom said, we're trying to get along. I love your dad. And because of you, we're always going to be in each other's lives. And that's an attitude so few blended families are able to embrace because of some traditionally or, you know, toxic held views. And all it takes is one person in the dynamic to have them. Mm -hmm. And you can't have like a family dinner. Like I still don't understand going back to kind of talking at the top of the show, why I never had like anything close to a family dinner, like with my blended family, it was always super parallel and super separate. And I just worry that that's not necessarily healthy, but this is showing like how that can also affect a kid. Like, uh, I guess I'm, I'm saying that I find it interestingly conflicting, right? Because they're getting along is a beautiful thing. We should want blended families to get along because it just increases the size of the team for this child. But then again, it's also kind of showing it as a negative thing because it got Jesse's hopes up in that sense. Granted, they all seem to handle it really well in the end of it. You know, I, I assume I'll go into some of the negatives like later that kind of come. It has to do with this scene in a sense mm -hmm. um, where I feel like they're kind of blurring what parts are fantasy and what parts are actually happening. Uh, but as far as what I think to understand what happened in that scene, I really did love the conversation that Jesse's mom was able to have. And then, of course, the cheese baby kind of made me laugh, too. But that's what kind of took me out of that moment at the same time. Right. <laughs> so a lot of mixed feelings. And then the last good thing was I just like seeing gratitude. 
I, I like the gratitude. I think he's silly. He's cute and he's not overdone. Um, probably because he's voiced by Zach Galifianakis, who is not like a regular on the show. I don't, I think they kept him. It sounded like Zach again. So I did like Zach Galifianakis and gratitude popping in for a few good little chuckle worthy lines. And then, you know, not overstaying his welcome as he does. Better than Coach Steve. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, yeah. Other good. No Coach Steve. There was not yeah. a single Coach Steve cameo in this one. Indeed. Um, well, for me, I guess, I, I know there's one line uh, uh, in, during uh, one of Jesse's fantasies that I loved um, uh, where her dad says, I stopped eating edibles. And her mother goes, and I stopped eating pussy, baby. <laughs> yes, I had that down. Yeah, I had the quotable. I forgot the quotable quote. See, I keep forgetting it because I've had them in my notes, but they're somewhere separate. But yeah, the I stopped eating edibles and I stopped eating pussy also got a really fair chuckle out of me. Um, other awesome ones was when Andrew was being shut in the trunk. <laughs> His mm-hmm. mom goes, take shallow breaths, Andrew. <laughs> that made me laugh. Um, chunk of wisdom from the turkey. You were too busy reacting to his anger with your own anger. And that was when it come it came to seeing his father's attempts of expressing love. Like mm-hmm. he was so mad that it's not in a way that he wants that he didn't see his own dad's love language, which goes back into the overall good, awesome part of the episode. I also really couldn't help but laugh at Missy's dad when he responded to her comment that NPR's programming has gotten stale. He goes, well, clearly you're still high. (laughs) I just love it. I love, I think I've mentioned on here, I do listen. I actually on this very same episode that I listened to NPR and like uh, the the local public radio station. So Mm -hmm. I thought that was kind of great. Well, as far as, um, you know, good, I, I had to put the Andrew storyline as good. I mean, this, you know, for for as much as we bagged on John Mulaney this season, um, I think this is the first time uh, this season that I've cared about Andrew. And most importantly, I, I think this is the first time that I can recall that they made his father, Marty, a human and not a two-dimensional sitcom character. Right. Like, I even like, like, Andrew showing some of those actions of breaking the pattern he sat and talked to his dad about hey like it's gotta suck like this is the first christmas without your dad mm-hmm. because zadie had just had died like within this last year so it was i, I loved that andrew's storyline for once contributed so much good to this episode so yeah right there with you on their storyline being good for once. <laughs> and like more than anything too, I think it, I think overall the entire episode was good at not throwing too much at the wall to see what sticks. I think the times to where I, 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 bristle a little bit at the show is that you know when they do throw in the coach steve cameos for no real reason but a quick quote-unquote laugh you know i i didn't really i didn't really see that in this episode you know if you know from start to finish they chugged along at a pretty good speed um the story was told really well and while i do have some complaints that we'll go over on the bad side you know i, I just think overall it was really well done. They didn't, they, they, inv- they used the cast for this episode in the right way. Right. And it, it goes back to, we didn't have unnecessary Steve. And I just, just again, can't get over that Andrew's storyline. Like I appreciated it so much and it was a topic that I care a lot about. So it really got my attention this time. Indeed. Now, what about the bad? <laughs> 
honestly, I'm going to keep this really short um, because there wasn't a lot of bad for me in this episode. The masked principal, why? I, I, it was just he was there. I, it was a joke that I didn't really appreciate last season. And so I, it makes me almost cringe at the thought of, is Coach Steve going to be the masked principal? Because he wasn't in this episode and they just yeah. threw this masked principal in. And I'm like, oh, my God, don't let it be that dumb. <laughs> uh, I also really didn't care for the text in vote bit. They followed the rules of three. They tried very hard to make it funny. And it just it wasn't any of the times. Even the callback third one later was not funny. Yeah. Um, and this was the comment in general. And it was more mostly with Jesse, I think. But um, personally, I'm starting to have a hard time establishing between the reality and the fantasy scenes here. Like how much of the talk on the bed between Jesse and mom was real before she got up and left. And then again, later on, on the porch with Allie, how much was that was real before it slipped into the fantasy. I have no idea. How much did Allie hear? Did Allie even say how much she missed her and loved her back? I'm guessing not because it didn't look like they had hugged when she snapped out of it. But to me, it just seems messy lately. And maybe that's representing something with Jesse, but that was all I had to say about the bad stuff. But to your point, though, I mean, I, I think that's more of just an overall flaw with the writing, because ideally you should be able to know. And we've we've experienced it in past episodes, you know, where there has been a clear demarcation of fantasy and, you know, reality, reality as as it exists in the world of the show. Um, and I, I do agree that, you know, this episode did have some, you know, some flaws when it when it came to, uh, you know, letting the viewer be, be aware of, you know, this is imaginary and this is happening for real. So I, I, I'm definitely with you on that. Um, for me, I think the big thing that really stuck out as bad was Missy's storyline, because what was really different from this than the same time she met her cousins last season? It was really a recycled storyline. They didn't bring anything really new. They were just there to essentially put the joint in Missy's hand. And, um, you know, and, and it, it's, I, I, I say this not as I didn't want to see them because I thought, you know, her cousins as characters were great. It's just give me another reason. Don't regurgitate the same thing to where they're, you know, the cousins show up and start making the comments about, you know, Missy's parents. And then they bring up the hair again. And it was just more retread. And I guess, you know, I, I didn't need to see that. I think they could have done something else that that would have led, you know, Missy down the same path. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, what is your overall score? How'd you like the episode? I liked it more than most. So I wound up just giving it a seven out of 10. And I don't think I need to go too much further into why, just because I've glowed so much about just my appreciation for liking Andrew's story and the topic of intergenerational habits and, and raising concepts and anger, especially. Uh, so seven out of 10, it was pretty solid. I really almost was teetering on giving it an eight just because there wasn't a lot of bad. Mm -hmm. There were only a few times where I felt like I got pulled out of the story, but other than that, it was really good. What about you? Me? I gave it a six out of 10. Um, the reason I went with the more mediocre score was while I, like I said, at the start, I don't think they did anything terrifically bad in this episode. Like they have in other 
episodes, but they didn't really do too much that stuck out as really good. So it didn't balance out for me. And I, and, and that's being nitpicky, I guess, but um, overall, I had to give it a six out of 10. Um, having said that, to be clear, um, I, I think this episode works, has worked better more so than uh, the other episodes we've seen so far, just because there's not that huge seesaw effect and really, really good. And then really, really bad. It was really solid throughout, but nothing to really write home about, you know, this wasn't their absolute best episode, but it wasn't their worst either. It, it was a nice episode to move you to the next part of the story. Right. And it's like they, if there wasn't like any new awesome way of representing anything that was introduced. So that's where it's like, yeah, it's solid. But I think I do agree with you to that sense. It's nothing to write home about. Yeah. Well, look at that. Another episode of Big Mouth is in the books. Yay. Now I get to bundle up to go to my car and go rescue the Mr. Reverend from his daily work. <laughs> Ah, yes. Getting the old snowshoes, too. Or <laughs> uh, well, I mean, not right now. I accidentally left my snowshoes at the office today by mistake. So it's okay. I'm just wearing my regular boots. But, you know. Well, very good, then. Let's uh, wrap this up, then, so that Mr. Reverend can have his rescuer and uh, be brought home in a nice, warm apartment. So Yes. Um, so with that thank you all for listening every saturday we're going to have something in this podcast space to entertain your ear holes on other days of the week as well remember to listen to the next episode of hump day on wednesday but we bid you adieu farewell everybody subscribe to friend stalking nerdy on itunes the google play music store as well as spotify remember to support friends talking nerdy on patreon Goodbye, darling.